I'm Evan Smith of the Texas Tribune, and this is Point of Order, a podcast about the ins and outs, the ups and downs, the people and politics and traditions of the 86th Texas Legislature. This week, criminal justice reforms Big Mo, how the push to reduce the size of the prison population and the high cost of bail, to rethink drug laws and sentencing minimums, and to smooth the re-entry into our communities of those who've paid their debt to society, among other policy tweaks, is gaining bipartisan traction. Recently, at the federal level, we've seen landmark criminal justice reform legislation overwhelmingly supported by members of Congress from both parties and signed into law by the president. With the influence and imprimatur of Texas all over it and various Texans playing lead roles in its crafting from start to finish. Here at home, we've been having serious, sincere conversations, also with both sides on board, about preventing wrongful convictions, jail intake procedures after Sandra Bland, raising the age of criminal responsibility, and the need to back the blue to provide support for and build respect for our men and women in law enforcement. But there's much more work to be done. And despite a legislative agenda roadblocked at the moment by the need to fix school finance, advocates for a fairer, cheaper criminal justice system will be out in force this session. This week's guests will have a lot to say about the twists and turns of these issues in the 86th from within and without. State Representative Nicole Collier, Democrat of Fort Worth, is the newly named chair of the House Criminal Jurisprudence Committee, where so much of the relevant reform legislation will be taken up. Mark Levin heads the Center for Effective Justice and the Right on Crime Initiative at the influential Texas Public Policy Foundation in Austin. In the community of conservative policy wonks, he is the rabbi of such reform efforts, and so his wisdom and blessing are eagerly sought. We three talked on the morning of January 28th, day 21 of the 104th. Point of Order is supported by Studio 919. Your legislative meeting spot is steps away from the Texas State Capitol. Book today at studio919.org. And by Methodist Healthcare Ministries, dedicated to creating access to health care for uninsured and low-income families in South Texas through healthcare services, advocacy, and strategic grant making. Learn more at mhm.org. Let me start with a big question, broad question, existential question. It, it feels to me like once upon a time the criminal justice system worked and then all of a sudden it didn't or all of a sudden it didn't enough that we were constantly talking about having to fix it. All of a sudden it was a disaster. All of a sudden it was racist. All of a sudden it was full of innocent people. All of a sudden prosecutors were corrupt. All of a sudden cops were bad. Now, that's an exaggeration, but it's an exaggeration to a point because it feels like one day the worm turned. Mark, when did the worm turn? What happened? Well, that's a great question. I mean, the uh, from the standpoint of incarceration, basically, we um, basically had similar rates of incarceration as Western Europe and Canada, basically, uh, up until the early 70s. And that's when 
we really hit a period from basically the mid-70s to the mid-2000s, a five- to six-fold increase in the incarceration rate, both in Texas and across the country. So I think the volume of the system, and this is true when it comes to indigent defense as well, um, and treatment programs and all that, it, it got overwhelmed by volume. Is that population growth? Texas's population we know is growing precipitously. You have more people here. Theoretically, more people are, or the percentage of people who are bad or who deserve to go away, or don't go, deserve to go away, but go away anyway, presumably goes up too, right? Yeah, but I mean, it really outstripped the growth in population. So we had, just to give you an example, in Texas, in the mid-80s, 30,000 people in prison. And obviously, we went to a high of about 160,000. Now we're down about 100 to 147,000. So we have, starting in 2007, kind of with the Justice Reinvestment uh, Initiative in Texas, where Texas finally said, we're not going to keep building prisons. We're going to invest in drug courts and other alternatives. We really turned the corner. But we've still had this, you know, huge increase both in the number of people incarcerated as well as the costs um, yeah. that far outstripped inflation or population growth. Uh, Chair, you've been in the legislature for a few sessions, but you remember what it was like when you were just a plain old boring attorney, right? Didn't actually serve in politics. Was your perception from the outside and has it been on the inside that something has gone bad? Well, I think that there's, there's been the perception and, and there has been a reality that there has been disparities in the criminal justice system. So, New disparities or just old disparities that we're now aware of? There have been old disparities that have become aware of, that yeah. people have become aware of. Yeah. So I think that there have been, they have been there. And now that it has become a money issue, now, most, now we have people like Mark Levine that are t- paying attention to it because they are conscious of the cost. And we have to be aware of that as well as the opportunities that we have to uh, reduce those costs and uh, provide opportunities for um, rehabilitation. So I think that we have the you know common interests and goals of cost savings and uh, rehabilitation. And when we can do that together, then we can do good for Texas. You, you think we're spending too much money, Madam Chair, on criminal justice in Texas? Well, I'm not at, advised just yet about how much the exact numbers are, but I think we can do more on rehabilitation. Right. Uh, Mark, do you have a sense that we're spending too much? Well, yeah, and especially that, well, and and this is actually what I'm testifying to the Senate Finance Committee today about is we have to shift uh, resources from locking up particularly nonviolent folks into treatment programs um, and whether it's mental health, substance abuse, and so forth. So we... Certainly, that those things cost far less than prison, but they do cost money. So, so you're as spending too much on the wrong things, you need to be spending some of that money on the right things. Right, the things to get people right. back with their and, families. And in the end, it may end up being an overall net savings, but not everything that you stop spending on, you're going to save. Right, and remember, the other side of the ledger is when you have people that are taxpayers, they buy things, they pay sales tax, they're not burdens on the government. So there's they're a positive impact on the economy. Yeah, taking care of their children. I mean, mothers who are incarcerated in Texas have almost three children per mom. So when 90% of the women in our jails and prisons are nonviolent, it's prostitution, drug possession. So that's a great example where we could uh, pursue alternatives that would be far more effective. Right. Uh, Chair, is the motivation for reform about race, which is to say that the system is disproportionately treating people of color <clears throat> worse than, um, than Anglo-Texans, is the motivation that we're treating poor people worse, uh, whether, whether it comes to bail, we need to talk about bail reform at some point today, and the question of are we making uh, the lowest among us, uh, uh, giving them access to the system in a way that is, is fair and, and adequate. Is it about both race and class, or is it about neither? I'm just wondering which of these is the pressure point here. Well, I wouldn't say that those are the sole motivation. But those are two, but those are two big ones but you hear about a lot. Well, they're contributing factors. Right. Uh, I mean, there's a lot of things that play into it. Um, 
you know, we have to look at the needs of the individual. We have to look at the causes and, and um, what we can do as Texans and, and as a state to improve the system. So I, I think that, yes, race, culture, and, and uh, socioeconomic um, status do play a role in it, but they may not be the sole cause right. of, of what, you know, we need to do in terms of uh, criminal justice reform. Right, Mark, I guess what I'm getting at here is what is the problem we're trying to fix? Is the problem we're, that we're trying to fix that the system is skewed heavily against people of color? Is the system uh, built in a way where people with the least amount of resources therefore have the least ability to navigate the system in a way that is is fair? Or as the chair says, are there a larger set of considerations here? Well, I'd say all of the above. In yeah. the, I mean, obviously, bail reform and indigent defense are two areas where you see people without resources um, having the deck stacked against them. And also fines and fees, by the way, debtors' prisons. We passed some really good legislation last session, but, you know, it, and it's had an impact. Uh, if you look at the data from the Texas Supreme Court where, you know, we've reduced the number of people still who are serving um, jail time as they can't afford to pay a fine or a fee, which, by the way, when they're in jail every night, it's $80 for taxpayers per, per night they're in jail, and we still don't have the money from their traffic fine or whatever. So it's a counterproductive policy, but we made some progress, but it's still hundreds of thousands of people uh, that this is affecting, not to mention the driver responsibility program, which uh, Cherry Canales is no longer on Crimger, but now chair of transportation. We hope he'll, uh, I know he will be, a, uh, a supporter of getting rid of this program where people lose their driver's licenses. because He's they can't focused afford- now more on the driver part than the responsibility part as he shifted over to transportation. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So those bills will probably go to the committee to repeal that program. But yeah, I mean, in general, um, I think what we need to do is uh, prisons should really be just for people that we're afraid of, not those we're mad at, for people that were dangerous. And other people, we ought to be doing everything we can, including through changing the probation system. So instead of of setting them up for failure or helping them succeed. We got to do everything we can to get these folks back in the workforce or if they have a job, help them keep their job and make restitution if they stole something, get uh, treatment if they have an addiction, and uh, we'll have a much stronger state. Right. Uh, and Chairwoman Collier, this is actually, I, I think this is so interesting. The size of the prison population is sort of the, the, the hub. Everything else that we're talking about sort of are the spokes, right? Um, Mark Morial, the president of the National Urban League, at the time that the First Step Act, which I want to talk about in a second, the federal criminal justice reform that um, famously passed a few uh, weeks ago as we sit here and, and was signed into law by the president, at the time that that passed, his description of this problem was that the system of mass incarceration is so destructive and needs to be fixed. He is describing it as mass incarceration, sounds almost barbaric or inhumane. Is that an exaggeration that we, we live in a society in which the problem is mass incarceration? The system that we have created in yeah. Texas is mass incarceration. And, well, I mean, and, and federally. I mean, Texas is an emblem of a larger problem. I mean, we always lead everybody else. And, well, I know. mean, it's difficult. I mean, when you have a, a system where, you, you, Mark, you were just talking about how somebody, um, you know, we're talking about rehabilitating them and getting them back to work into society. Yes, we can do that once, you know, instead of locking up nonviolent uh, offenders, uh, trying to find uh, programs that can get them back to work. But it's once, how do we get them back to work when we don't have uh, employers that are willing to take the chance and hire them? I mean, w- what are we doing to encourage employers to, to look at them? I mean, are we doing uh, ban the box? Are, are we promoting programs like that that will get, uh, get them the opportunity to have that interview? I mean, what else are we doing? I mean, it's good to that we can just say, uh, let's get them into these drug rehabilitation programs. Let's get them into the programs that will get them training. But if they don't have the opportunity to get in front of these employers, then we're not doing it. We're doing a disservice to them again. We're just prolonging it. So uh, we need to do more than just 
have these programs, what else are we doing to get them back to work? Well, isn't, that, isn't that the conversation? What, what, are we doing enough for people who leave prison, whether it's providing them with rights to vote, yeah. right? I mean, that's one big topic of conversation nationally now. Are we giving give, you know, uh, uh, people who've been in prison the opportunity to return to society in a way that allows them to be uh, uh, voting members of our communities? Are we providing them with opportunities in the workforce or eliminating things like the indication that you've served in prison so that uh, it smooths away for, for employees to consider them. I mean, this is the whole bucket of issues relating to people leaving prison that we now need to be talking about. And even about, people right? just with a criminal record. There's 65 million Americans with a criminal record. Not all of them went to prison, but it's still a scarlet letter. So we got some legislation for the Texas legislature this time to uh, make it easier for these folks to get an occupational license. Um, number one, it's about a third of jobs, you need a license. And then secondly, uh, looking at... Uh, uh, non-disclosure, expanding record sealing. Uh, so people who have demonstrated that they are abide by the law within the community for a certain period of time, they could get their record sealed. Um, right. And therefore, if it, with a, it's different from expunction, which is, you know, of course, prosecutors are very skeptical of that because they want to be able to enhance it. And of course, there are certain agencies that can see sealed files, but they can't see expunged files. So the record sealing, non-disclosure, there's a lot more support among stakeholders for expanding right. that. Well, let's do a little legislative business. Madam Chair, you're going to lead the Criminal Jurisprudence Committee in the 86th Texas Legislature. What do you think about providing occupational licensing as an option back to people who've served their time and demonstrated that they're, they want to be productive members of society? You for that? Well, it depends on what you know what is presented yeah. in front of me. I, I yeah. think we'll, we'll look I guess, at all but Theoretically, I mean, obviously, all the God's in the details, right? I mean, that's it. We understand that. But as a principle, right. It sounds to me like, based on what your earlier comments, right. you're, you're for smoothing the way. Exactly. I, right. I, yes, I definitely want to look at this opportunity. How about sealing records? You like that? Uh, more non-disclosure? I like to look at that, yes. Yeah, and again, right. it's not for child sex predators. I, Everything's in the details. I bet you but, like yeah. nothing more, Mark, than an <laughs> yeah, yeah. amenable chair. She's amenable to consider. It'll be common sense, uh, very, very good stuff. Right. You know the pushback, both of you, the pushback against criminal justice reform of the sort we're going to talk about today, what we've been talking about and what we will talk about, is that somehow criminal justice reform is or can be inconsistent with victims' rights, right? That somehow we are creating a public safety problem or that we're not respecting the people who've been on the wrong end of a criminal justice matter by somehow uh, weighing our empathy and our efforts in the direction of the person who committed the offense as opposed to the victim of the offense. What do you say to that? I mean, that was a topic of conversation during the federal criminal justice reform a bit. There were some Republican senators in particular who said, wait a minute, we're going all this way to reform the system, but it is disrespectful to the rights of victims. Well, I think that when you're talking about sentencing, when you're talking about the sentencing guidelines, is that what you're referring well, to? Well, I think it's sort of a broader question of, of, of whose side are we on here. Okay. Right. Well, I think that, you know, there's consideration for the, the victims and the victim's family <coughs> yeah. when, you're, when you're talking about the, uh, the extent of, uh, you know, what happened in the, the situation and how it impacts the community and, and the, um, you know, deterrent nature of the the crime and the, I think that that should play a role in it certainly right. but I don't know if it would be the sole fact determining factor of 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 what the outcome should be that you know there's a whole um, process that's involved but certainly that should be a component you of, should weigh, you should weigh that I, I believe that that should be part right. of it yeah. you know Mark, Mark you represent an organization called right on crime mm -hmm. it once upon a time the conversation was tough on crime the question is is right on crime and uh, inconsistent somehow with tough on crime can you be tough on violent offenders can you be tough on criminals but also understand 
that we need to uh, be empathetic and sympathetic and we can do so while still respecting the rights of victims and the concerns of communities. Yeah, well, Chairman Whitmire likes to say tough and smart, which I think is a, a good thing. And, you know, the, as far as victims, actually surveys of victims show that they very much support rehabilitation programs. They want to know that there's some intervention so this uh, offender won't do it to someone else. Right. Um, they also care a lot about restitution and even an apology through things like victim offender mediation, which we supported for property offenses. And then, of course, the other thing is, uh, you know, bail reform. If someone comes up with a lot of money, like this guy who killed Officer Allen, that uh, Governor Abbott, uh, the case he's talked about, the guy was out on commercial bail because he was able to come up with $15,000. And then just in November, there was a, this guy previously had um, a child sex offense and was locked up for another, arrested for another child sex offense. Well, lo and behold, while his case was pending, his parents, his parents won the lottery. And so they posted hundreds of thousands of dollars. You literally cannot make that up. No. Right? Yeah. And this was in Texas in November. So, I mean, we can't put a price on uh, public safety uh, in that sense. And we ought to be making these decisions not based on how much money someone has, but what's their risk of uh, up to public safety. So, so let's come back to this question of what we owe people before we talk about the federal criminal justice reform that just passed. What we owe people in incarcerated and people who've been formally incarcerated. So on the question of whether we're doing enough for people in prison, are we spending enough money, in your opinion, Chair, on educational programs, on vocational programs, on the conditions in which people are incarcerated? You know, there have been discussions about whether we treat um, female inmates with the same um, respect that we treat male inmates, even though the population is overwhelmingly male, there are concerns that we're not providing adequate living conditions for female inmates. Is your sense that we have to be thinking about how we treat people once they're in, not just people once they're out? Well, I, I mean, regardless of, I mean, if the, if the state is charged with taking care of a human being, we have to do that with dignity. We have to do that regardless of whether, you know, we like that person or not. Um, and so I, I've read stories about how there was not air conditioning in a, a state jail facility so that's not right. Humane. This is Texas, not Vermont. It gets hot here. Right? <laughs> it does so, get hot here. Yeah. So we do have to provide, you know, basic necessities of life, and that you know would require us to have, you know, yeah. the, the proper air and heating of, for someone. I mean, I just we're, we're in you know the 21st century. You would expect that to be provided. And your sense, chair, is that there is bipartisan agreement on these basics in terms of what we provide people in prison. I have not heard anything other than that. Yeah. Well, and Mark, James White, uh, the chair of the Corrections Committee, has filed uh, already a bill, the Women's Dignity Bill, which, among other things, includes uh, making sure uh, women that are incarcerated have access to feminine hygiene products, for example. Um, that they're, um, the, the fact that we even have to have that conversation is itself an indication of how far we have to go, right? Yeah, and look, I mean... Um, we need a bill for that? Obviously. Apparently we do. Well, yeah, I mean, and again, we've over the decades, even though we turned the corner starting in 2007, but over the decades, we kept building more prisons. And so TDCJ basically had to try to cut corners on maintenance, on uh, things, on conditions in order to just keep piling more people in and especially elderly people. I mean, right. we need to look at the medical and geriatric parole as well because we're incarcerating. Uh, we're going to be soon up to 500 people in a wheelchair. There's others on dialysis, people that are in a comas, a vegetative state. Then it's, it's, it's fruitless to keep incarcerating those folks. I guess as we observed during the filibuster of some years ago at the Capitol, if you can't bring feminine hygiene products into the gallery in the Senate, you probably can't bring them into prison, right? That's, uh, there may be a legacy of that there. So, so one of many things that we need to be talking about, and of course the educational programs, Mark, and the vocational ones, in all seriousness, 
provide really the path forward for people who've paid their debt to society and create opportunities for them down the road. If we don't educate them, if we don't train them, once they get out of prison, either on time or early, it's hard to expect them to return, right, Madam Chair, to society in a way that they could be productive. That's absolutely correct. Well, and if you pick up the TDCJ, their statistical report, you'll see that the average incoming prisoner has a great functioning level of 7.2, and on average on departure releases is about 7.4. So uh, this is uh, so among, of course, bringing down that number is a lot who aren't even literate. Uh, so literacy is a huge issue because if you can't read, you can't work in construction or a fast food restaurant. Um, and then, you know, I'm training these guys to be professors at Harvard. We're just trying to give them the basic skills to be productive members of society. Now, right? by the way, a law professor at Georgetown, Sean Hopwood, who's a convicted fellow, he's going to be here on Wednesday. We're doing an event with prison fellowship. So there are those. So sometimes yes, there are people who but, come. Uh, but who by come and large, through, right? the vocational literacy has the yeah. biggest return. Well, and then it's, yeah, I'm sorry. Well, well, what I was reading is that a lot of people who are in our state jail. Uh, state prisons uh, are convicted of property offenses. About 47% is my understanding, and then 41% right. are, are drug-related offenses. So um, it just seems that we have the opportunity to rehabilitate individuals, um, and they have the opportunity to go back into society. Um, so your sense maybe is that given the nature, I'll ask this of both of you, that the nature of the crimes that have caused people to be incarcerated, that there is a disproportionate response by the criminal justice system that treats everybody as a criminal when, in fact, there are different degrees of offense, which might allow for different degrees of treatment. Well, they're just not all nonviolent. There's a lot of nonviolent criminals in our state prison system. Right. And so there's an opportunity for us to look at an, uh, a diversion program or some other program where we can say, hey, look, what is the cause of these? Is it, the, like you said, the socioeconomic? What caused these types of crimes to occur? Where have we, um, where can we do more and improve, um, you know, the, where can we improve uh, the outcomes for these individuals, help yeah. improve the outcomes? Because, I mean, people have to take responsibility for themselves. We all have to take responsibility for our own right. actions. But what can we do to help get them into that path. Right. You, you would agree that the dis distinction between violent and nonviolent offenders creates an opportunity here for us to do differently or do better. Sure, we have a lot of low-hanging fruit now. I mean, again, there are people that committed a violent act 40 years ago that aren't dangerous anymore, they're in prison, but I think the biggest area of focus is the folks that, um, you know, and Harris County's doing this through the reintegration program, their diversion program. I mean, they've diverted thousands of people from state jails and prisons over the last couple of years, and part of it's through funding from the state. Um, but the key is the early intervention. So they identify the these low-level drug offenders, uh, as soon as they get into um, jail, as soon as they're arrested, and they offer them, look, here's the treatment. You, you do all these things, you'll never be charged or convicted. Right. And so they haven't accumulated all that jail time because they can't afford bail. They haven't lost their job. They haven't become disconnected from their family. Um, and so it avoids the problem, which is really, we hear so much, people actually choosing state jail instead of probation because they've already been in county jail for months. They can't afford bail. They've accumulated this time. Right. They've lost their job. They've lost their apartment. So now I'll just go to state jail for several more months and then I won't even be, there's no parole or super vision afterwards so versus five years on probation. So the way um, that Harris County got around this problem of people opting against probation was to offer this pure diversion where they don't get something on their record and they target them really early. The sooner you get someone with an addiction, for example, into treatment and out of the jail, and especially true with people that are mentally ill, they get worse in jail, um, the better off it is. H uh, higher likelihood of success. Yeah. So the First Step Act, which was the federal criminal justice reform that passed overwhelmingly 
both chambers of Congress signed by the president, and it had everybody from Cory Booker to Charles Grassley supporting it. So it's, you know, again, the rare, first of all, it was rare that Congress acts and does anything, but second of all, it was rare, especially that the parties come together to pass something and the president signs it, and this era of Washington is broken. Um, a number of things contained within this, and again, this just dealt with the federal criminal justice piece of this conversation, but it reduced the disparity between certain drug crimes. It, uh, it dealt with some sentencing reforms. It dealt with the matter of good time credits earned by federal inmates and earned time credits. Um, it talked about improving conditions in, in prisons. Uh, this seems to have been a bill that everybody could find something marked to like in, right? Well, yeah, including our two Texas senators voted for it and virtually every member Although of Congress. Although it wasn't 100% clear that was going to happen, right? Senator Cruz was a late addition to the supporters of this bill. But he had a little tweak that he wanted to right. get on, and I was on a call with him, actually, at virtually every rabbi in the United States, which was memorable. But And then I had started meeting with Jared Kushner back in October of 2017, and that's kind of where all this was back when Sessions was there. And so right. we we started with a focus on reentry because even Sessions you know, publicly would say, I agree that we ought to make sure when people come out of prison, they're prepared to reenter. Um, he was obviously very skeptical of sensing reform, um, but uh, just through a lot of hard work and, um, you know, the uh, thankfully uh, it all, and we had no idea when it was this past right before the end of the year that the government shutdown would come, but we pretty much knew given. Well, and you had to also, you had to wire around the reluctance of Leader McConnell in the Senate, right? Who was not 100% on board bringing this bill up for a vote? I mean, there was pressure that had to be put on leadership in the Senate even to get this bill to the floor. Yeah, and that's what I think stunned everyone is that the grassroots uh, backing for <clears throat> this, not just from liberals, although that was what people expected. We worked closely with Cut 50, for example, but, but grassroots conservatives, I mean, especially religious conservatives. Um, and also, you know, uh, we work with like Freedom Works and Americans for Prosperity, the grassroots free market types as well. They were calling, I mean, thousands of calls to their senators, and it ended up, obviously, 87 to 12 in the Senate. Yeah, it's pretty good. Uh, uh, Chair Collier, is this a bill you like when you're sitting back in Texas looking at what the federal, again, this is only, this only deals with the federal system. Right. It's only 181,000 inmates in the federal system. There are 2.1 million people in the U.S. jail and prison population, so it's a fraction of the total population of people incarcerated in this country, but it's a start. Oh, right. It's, I mean, the federal sentencing guidelines are so restrictive. And this does provide some type of, uh, you know, um, leeway for the, the judges in, in, in the, the system to uh, have some type of um, opportunity to reduce some of those guidelines. And it gets rid of the three strikes. I mean, it does. It's a, a really big step. And, yeah. and, and some people are getting released or they have been released that um, – have good time off and, and so forth. So, I mean, what is it, 2,000 people have been released because of this uh, provision? So it, it, it's a, a giant step. Wouldn't a, a good start for an 86 legislative session agenda for criminal justice be to take everything that we just passed at the federal level, which God knows if they can pass it, right? Why not just say we're going to do a slimmed-down version of that well, here. actually, a lot of what was in there they took so from the already did. did. It's already but, done. Yeah, but I mean, but some you, of the you things, stipulate the yeah, point. Yeah, yeah, but yeah, like yeah. some of the things like earn time, which we did for uh, state jails and for people on probation, it's we could make it a lot more generous. I mean, the amount of time you get uh, for like earning a degree when you're on probation, it's like right. twenty days or something. And I, you know, we did that bill in 2011. It's a good bill, but it's pretty it's pretty stingy. So we can go back. And then the other thing is, you know, our system's a bit different. Like for example, um, half of the people coming into prison in our system, which is true in other states, but not the federal system, are re revocations from probation and parole. And parole's greatly reduced them, but probation revocations, including especially the technical ones. So if you miss a meeting, you leave the county without permission, you have a glass of wine with dinner, 
you be revoked from probation. And what we need to do is provide some incentives and, frankly, change the law to cap how long these people would be going back to jail for. Because all the research basically shows you can get the same result of getting people to comply with their probation, sending that message by putting them in jail for the weekend. It's the swiftness and the sureness of the sanction, not the duration that changes behavior. So right. I think we can do that, for example. And the consistency for... Um so if somebody serves out their time in county jail that they could have been serving in state prison, I think that there was the time, you know, earned time. I think that there might be inconsistency on what they get credit for. I think that that was something that I... So there's work potentially to be done here for, on, on, on that. Yes. Let me ask you about the question of retroactivity. Piper Kerman, who is the author of Orange is the New Black, the story of her own time in prison, and that now has become a big television program, but more than her becoming a big television celebrity by virtue of her having created uh, through the book this television program, she's become a criminal justice reform advocate in her own right. And she was actually talking just today on social media about the need with the First Step Act for retroactivity. If we think that all this stuff is important for the people currently there, isn't there any way to go back and clean up some of the messes of the past? What do you think about retroactivity as a factor in this? Well, you know, the thing about legislation, it's always baby steps. You, you, you get one place and then you're happy that you're there. I mean, look how long it took for us to get to this First Step Act. And so as a legislature, I know that this is a giant step. And then next step is to probably look back at the retroactivity of the the process. So, I mean, yes, we're here and we celebrate that. And then you look at the next opportunity. Right, it's complicated, Mark, but I'm I'm remembering when Craig Watkins was sworn in as the district attorney of Dallas County and he decided to reopen a bunch of cases in the past in which people who were convicted and sent to death row and claimed their innocence all along would have the opportunity to have those cases looked at again, and there were a certain number of exonerations up there. Again, that's a version of retroactivity. We're not going to just say going forward we're going to do X, but we're actually going to consider what happened before, and if there were mistakes that we can clean up and that we know were mistakes, we're going to go ahead and clean those up. Is there a way to look at this issue in a similar way? And one of the ways we're trying to do that is the second look bill this session. So these are children uh, as young as 14 who received a life sentence uh, in Texas. So there's 2,000 of these children in our prisons now, and um, they would, um, many of them would not receive such an onerous sentence today. Now, in order to comply with the Supreme Court precedent um, that's saying you can't put uh, life without parole for kids, Texas adopted several years ago that after 40 years in prison, they would get a first review. And all this second look bill would change it to 20 years, which is still a heck of a long time. And so right. um, that's one that we think we can hopefully uh, put through this session. Potentially go back. So let, let me ask you about bail. We were, Bail's come up a couple times. Mm-hmm. I want to get into this idea. California passed bail reform and signed into law by uh, Governor then Governor Jerry Brown last year. We mm-hmm. hate to be behind California in anything. This is a case where maybe we should California our Texas, Mark, right? I mean, the fact is, Governor Brown, when he signed the law in- implementing all cash bail uh, in August, he said, we're doing this so that rich and poor alike are treated fairly. Will you talk about what the law now says in California and whether and why we make that change here? Well, first of all, there's going to be a ballot measure because the bondsman funded a signature collection. So it'll be until 2020 that the way the law works out there, first there's the election. And then uh, if only if the referendum, uh, uh, the voters approve, then it will go into So what they passed was actually the mechanism. Well, the, the, the way it works there is they can gather signatures right. to force a referendum to essentially repeal a law before it goes into effect. So 
it's delayed until 2020 until but, the voters get the f- final word. But, but yeah, but, but they've moved on it. Yeah, absolutely. And a lot, right. and like New Mexico and New Jersey have actually implemented what I would say is a bit different from California. But basically, it says if you're going to have cash bail, it ought to be affordable, what somebody could meet. And at the same time, they amended their constitutions to say you can deny bail in a greater number of cases. So it, uh, you know, it has to be. So narrow- the example that you gave earlier of the individual who did the awful crime and whose parents paid his bail and he was out because he could afford it. Right. It would also provide, in theory, in a case like that, the opportunity to deny bail. Right. And, and some of the groups, uh, as the bill in California went through the process, the um, constitutional amendment got broadened uh, in a way that, for example, the ACLU ended up opposing what they uh, initially uh, that supported the bill because it got changed. So it's important to, and we've suggested some ways to make sure that the um, the constitutional provision for preventive detention, uh, denying bail, is not too broad, but it's broad enough to keep people that are truly dangerous behind bars. So um, uh, basically what judges now do in Texas, because the Texas constitution says you can only deny bail for capital murder, not even murder. They just set bail at a million or $2 million. But occasionally there's a guy like Robert Durst who, who can, can pay, pay that who can pay and, it, right. and continue dismembering bodies. So uh, we need this constitutional amendment, which was in the Whitmire bill from last session. Plus we need uh, jurisdictions to be using a risk assessment, not just a gut instinct to uh, evaluate uh, defendants. And we need to say any bail should be affordable. So it was something that the person Person could actually meet. So I think that, um, and that's essentially what New Jersey and New Mexico right, do. And, that, and, last, and that last part, Chair Collier, that really is the motivation for bail reform. The yeah. real motivation for bail reform is that you got a bunch of people who should theoretically be able to post bail and be out who are not threats to us, but because the expense of bail is so great and their res- access to resources is so little that it doesn't work. That's really the motivation, is it not? Well, that's that's true. I think that you know, you have to have consider all those factors yeah. in, into the equation. Right. I mean, that's where the question of whether we're treating the poorest among us uh, uh, equally or fairly and this, whether the system works for the poorest among us who happen not to be threats. That's the, that's the question. So we'll, you, you'll be open to considering, again, the amenable chair. You'll be open to considering. <laughs> I'm open to considering these, these factors. Do you have any objections to it that you can think of? Is there anything about the, the theory of bail reform that you are, at least at this point, opposed to? Well, I would need to listen to all the facts, and, and of course, I'm, I'm as a chair, I'm here to, you know, take into the consideration what is presented in front of me. And so, without anything in front of me, I'm not going to be able to make a decision about. And anything. she was just appointed. I mean, let's be fair. But Chairman Whitmire, I am being fair. We, yes, I agree. It's a long it's, bill. I, I think it was 60 it. pages originally last right. session, and we got the constitutional amendment. But it's a great start. And I think Chairman Whitmire, from what we've heard, will be proceeding again right. with something similar. So. All right, so on the subject of Chairman Whitmire and what happened last session and, let me, and did not, let me go to another specific thing about which, Chair, you may say, I'm open to it, but I want to hear about it before we get into some kind of broader, off-the-board kind of wildcard things. And that's raise the age. Mm-hmm. The question of what the age ought to be for criminal responsibility. This was a topic of conversation in the last session, and it bonked. Didn't, didn't ultimately end up where it needed to go. Mark. Yeah, 93 votes, though, in the Texas House. Uh, right. So that was Yes, but unfor- we have two chambers of the legislature, however. Yeah, right. And Chairman Whitmire was not really feeling this bill, was he? No, but since the legislature left, other states like Missouri, where I went up there to talk to them, but they implemented Raise the Age. Um, so um, now uh, we, we're 45 states say 17-year-olds presumptively are in the juvenile system. Now, with the Raise the Age bill in Texas, we would join the federal government in almost every other state, 
in saying, yes, if a 17-year-old commits, uh, is charged with a very serious offense, they could be certified as an adult. And we also have blended sentencing, by the way, which means right. you get a start in the juvenile it's system. Not, it's, the, it's not binary. It's not black yeah, and white. But, There's a lot of but areas most, of gray. 90% right, yeah. of them are misdemeanors. They're kids that right. steal a bag of chips or have marijuana. <laughs> is, isn't one theory, Mark, though, that the juvenile justice system in Texas is not anything to write home about? And so we're basically saying we're going to invest more kids into a system that is broken. And so why would we want to do that? Well, actually, juvenile probation works pretty well. There's, I mean, 750 kids now left in the state youth lockups. We've shrunk them from 5,000 to 2006. So we don't want to add to that. Um, but I, I think that Chairman Whitmire, for example, he's told me he's open to this as long as we, through the budget, give money to juvenile probation to implement it, right. which is reasonable. Yeah. And ch Chair, that is a subject that you expect to take up or at least we'll listen to again during this session? The raise the age, yes. Yeah. Yes. You have a point of view about it? Well, I'm trying to remember how I voted on that. You that voted for it. Yeah, okay. I thought <laughs> okay. I did. That, did Dutton carry that one? Yeah. yeah. Always better to be in the I 93. Say, I, I, say, I, I remember Dutton carrying that one. He said he was going to bring that one back. Yeah, and I guess it'll probably end up going to his committee, but yes. we'll certainly juvenile justice. At least it's a topic of conversation in a broad yeah. sense for yeah. criminal justice. So again, another topic of conversation broad in the uh, criminal justice reform area is the death penalty. Texas continues to be the killing state in the country. I believe we executed more people in the last year than any other state. And actually, we executed last year twice the number we had executed in both 2016 and 2017, although the overall number is down. The specific statistics where we put 13 men to death in 2018, again, more than half the total number of people executed in the entire country, which was 25, but also double in Texas what we had executed in 2016 and 2017. But the death row population, let's stipulate, here and nationally is dropping. And there are a lot of Republicans and conservatives in the legislature who are entertaining the possibility that this system is broken enough that we need significant reform. Chair, got a point of view about this? Well, that was a, a topic of discussion during the interim. Yeah. They studied the uh, the death penalty. And, and of course, there were quite a bit of people who came and testified about abolishing the death penalty. And uh, I don't think that that was um, resolved uh, during the discussion of, of the of the interim, I think that that's still a matter that we need to continue to explore and um, consider. I mean, there's strong feelings. You know, this this death penalty is reserved for the worst of the worst, and I don't think that we have applied it even-handedly. Uh, throughout the years. Well, there are two questions. One is, is it applied even-handedly, Madam Chair? The second is, are innocent people being sent away to death row? And of course, the evidence of the last yes. 10 or 15 years of the exonerations would indicate that the system may not be working well enough to trust that only people who deserve to go to death row are going to death row. I mean, but there's so many things that go into that. I mean, you, you talk about the counsel, you know, when somebody is using their uh, appointed counsel. I mean, we've had ineffective uh, assistance of counsel issues. Um, there's um, when you brought up the racial uh, impact of it. I mean, there's so many things that go into uh, whether somebody is, um, you know, given the capital sentence or given that capital murder or you know put it, you know the death row um, option. So I mean, there's just so many things that we need to consider. So right. we, we definitely need to take this up. Well, one of the issues we're very concerned with is the law of the parties, and so uh, Jeff Leach uh, will be working again to um, uh, hopefully uh, change or repeal that. So that some of you expensive. may be familiar. Yeah, this uh, uh, fellow Jeff Wood, who um, was I guess now again on uh, death row, the 
but, but the execution was stayed, was it not? Yeah. Yes. But but it's but it, uh, I believe they cleared the way for a new date to be set. Um, so, uh, but but the issue with the law of the parties is essentially uh, uh, so people understand it. This is someone who didn't pull the trigger, right. who uh, may have been involved in planning, for example, a robbery of a convenience store, and then. Um, may not even been at the a location or may have been in the car. And then, of course, things went awry. And again, it's still a heinous crime. But right. most people would say that the death penalty is for folks who pull the trigger, if we're going to have it. And um, uh, by the way, for the last 10 or 15 years in Texas, no one has gotten the death penalty under this. But these are cases that piled up 20 or 30 years From ago before, right? when district attorneys had kind of a looser approach to right. seeking the death penalty. Yeah, you, I, we've all heard Elsa Alcala, who was a former member of the Court of Criminal Appeals, Republican, who mm -hmm. turned on the death penalty at some point, maybe she was always actually an opponent, but became a visible and public opponent in the last several years on the court, has now left the court and is now working for an advocacy group that is trying to do significant reform to the death penalty. Mark, you're, you have your finger on the pulse of the conservative policy community. Do you think, by and large, that there is a willingness to entertain significant changes to this law? I think significant among, changes. Among you and yours? Yeah, I mean, I, I think kind of repealing the death penalty is probably not in the cards, but I think um, it's harrowing to think about that as a society, we would be executing someone who's innocent or someone who's mentally retarded um, and didn't appreciate what they were doing. So it's a serious issue. And, um, you know, juries in Texas have gotten more um, reluctant to impose the death penalty. Prosecutors have gotten more reluctant to seek it. And yet we still have these cases that have accumulated of people that would probably never get the death penalty today. So we need to confront that. Yeah. Uh, Chair, I want to ask you about marijuana. We could talk probably about marijuana for an hour because there are a lot of people in the state who believe this is finally the moment for us to have a grown-up conversation about a, a, a topic that other states have now kind of litigated and gone their own way on, right? Um, there are sort of three different potential scenarios. Your predecessor as chair, uh, now Speaker Pro Tem Moody, is a big believer in civil, the civil penalties conversation for low-level marijuana possession, eliminating the threat of arrest, jail time, and criminal record for less than an ounce of marijuana. How do right. you feel about that? Well, I, th I think that you'll see in the committee report that um, that's what he's pushing for, right. decriminalization. Yeah, but he's not the chair anymore. You <laughs> yeah. are. Well, that, I think that that's an option that, that we have is right. decriminalization for less than one ounce. That's personal use. Um, complete uh, use is another option that people are using for um, medical um, yeah. use. Uh, Wasn't too long ago that uh, Stephanie Click, an unlikely... Uh, champion of, of cannabis oil, but nonetheless, somebody who came forward and very bravely put up a bit of legislation to help people with epilepsy. Got totally the governor, different, though. Totally different, but got the governor to sign it. But what we were yeah. told at the time is this is not gateway legislation. That's right. That's what we were told at the time. Don't, don't come back to us with a whole bunch of stuff. The governor was not willing. But it seems like in the last couple of years since that bill passed, the climate nationally and the conversation in Texas has moved to a place where we may legitimately have such a conversation. Well, I think that it does have something to do with the criminal justice system. When we, we were just talking about how many people are in our state prisons for drug offenses, for nonviolent drug offenses, right. and a lot of it could stem from, because I don't know have the exact numbers in front of me, from some of these uh, marijuana offenses. So we we need to we definitely need to look at that, right? Uh, because these are people that can get back to work um, that may not have any other criminal um, history, right? So definitely that's something that we need to look at. Mark, as I described uh, it earlier, are you and yours willing to entertain loosening laws on marijuana 
Yeah, mater- and more materially. And more importantly, the governor is now. So as some of you may remember during the debate with Lupe Valdez, he uh, said he would be open to at least reducing it to a class C misdemeanor. You're asking me to remember something that happened in the governor's, the one <laughs> governor's debate this last year? Yes. Good luck. But but yeah, it was noteworthy because the governor hadn't expressed that before. And there's ways to even, if we reduced it to a class C, which I know isn't as far as Moody wants to go, but you could still have it uh, not create a permanent record, an automatic expunction or whatever. So you wouldn't have the collateral consequences. And of course, a class C misdemeanor is a speeding ticket. You go on down the road instead of going to jail. So it's a pretty big difference. Um, And then the other issue we're looking at is people on probation for something else who uh, test positive for marijuana or caught with marijuana, and then they go to state prison sometimes for decades. So uh, as we uh, address this, I think we also need to say this isn't something that you should be revoked from probation for. Let me ask you if, as happened in the last election cycle, where this question was put to the voters in a bunch of states, red states, and the voters said, yeah, we want to see this happen. You know, it's, it's a little bit like Medicaid expansion happened as well in a couple of red states where the elected conservative leaders were like, yeah, we're not going there, but it got on the ballot and the voters said, no, actually, we want to do it. Should we just say, let's let the voters decide? Should we put this issue to them as opposed to putting it to the legislature? Mark, how would you feel about that? Don't you love democracy? Well, you know, I think the citizen initiative has produced mixed results in other places, but it's not something we've taken a position on, whether Texas should have it or not. I think the chances of our elected officials uh, putting that through as a constitutional amendment uh, to give voters uh, a chance to propose ballot measures probably not going to happen. We would be the ones who are high if we think that's going to happen, actually, right? Yeah. But I I would trust the voters. You would trust the voters? (laughs) Yes. Sure. Yeah, I think the main problem other places run into with ballot measures is those that have a fiscal cost. Of course, marijuana reform is actually going to save a lot of money. And in Um, in, in theory, if you create uh, create a, a mechanism for it to be taxed, Right. I mean, then there's this whole conversation of whether it actually has an economic benefit. Maybe we can fund the public schools of Texas on the back of marijuana. <laughs> now, I don't want to get too carried away. I mean, there is some evidence. Oh, that's pretty carried away. I acknowledge. <laughs> yeah. There is some evidence that for, you know, young people uh, that it, it isn't all that beneficial for them to be using a lot of marijuana. No, now, brain development issues. No, I still think that. Agreed. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, I, and, I, and, I, and I still think like the costs of actually locking people up for this are greater than the harms. But I don't, I think we shouldn't pretend that it's something that should be encouraged for right. young people in B- particular. Before we wrap up here, Madam Chair, I want to ask you and then Mark ask you, is there one issue that we have not talked about that is on your radar screen from a criminal justice reform standpoint that whether we're not, whether we're talking about it or now, uh, uh, or, or not now, you hope that by the end of the session, it will have been a topic that we'll be addressing in the realm of criminal justice reform. Well, I think that, you know, when we look at what was uh, in the interim charges, these are issues that we're going to continue to address uh, this session, whether it's what happened, um, reforms that are needed as a result of the Hurricane Harvey disaster, how we can address the criminal justice system, uh, any sexual harass- uh, sexual assault uh, reforms that we need in our penal uh, penal system, and that would go through your committee. Yes, yeah. yes, yes. Those those types of reforms. Um, so, and then you touched on some of the other things that, but we didn't expand on them. But Mark did. Um, but other than that, I think that you know those we we've covered pretty much everything. Big, big topics. Mark, you have anything on your wish list? Well, one of the others is civil asset forfeiture. Uh, right. We have um, this is basically where without a conviction, the government can take your property, take your stuff. Right. right. And. 
different from seizure because they could still seize it. But what we're saying is the title shouldn't pass in most instances unless you've been convicted. Um, and so there's been a lot of abuses of this. And so we'd like to, uh, we've got a number of bills that Terry Canales and others have filed and uh, to try to address that and basically ensure due process and that you're innocent until proven guilty. Oh, and then red flag laws. I'm and sorry. then red flag, well, the governor actually raised the possibility of a conversation about red flag laws after the Santa Fe High School shooting, but then when it came around to the little group he put together on that, he suddenly seemed less inclined, and the lieutenant well, governor seemed less inclined. Well, I, I think when you mentioned due process, that's something that's very important when you when you talk about red flag. I think red flag and due process go hand in hand. You want to have that conversation regardless of whether there's an interest in the Senate or at the governor's office. I think that's very important. And well, you are the chair. The chair is all powerful. We're going to stop right there. You guys, thanks very much. You've been listening to Point of Order, a proud member of the Texas Tribune's family of podcasts. Thanks to our guests, State Representative Nicole Collier and Mark Levin of the Center for Effective Justice and Right on Crime. And thanks to the sponsors of this episode, Studio 919 and Methodist Healthcare Ministries. Be sure to check out the Tribune's deep coverage of the 86th legislative session at texastribune.org. And if you like what you see there or hear here, tell your friends about us. Until next time, I'm Evan Smith. Thank you.